This is a Wool Observatory podcast. Welcome to another episode of Star Stuff, a space oddity podcast by Lowell Observatory. And this is Cody Halfmoon. Today we're joined by Kevin Schindler, our historian, Maddie Mooney, our content writer, and Al Tombaugh, the son of Clyde Tombaugh, who made the incredible um, discovery of Pluto. What was that about ni- 92 years ago um, uh, this February? Is that right? Right. Clyde Tombaugh is a very famous, not only throughout the world, but especially here at Lowell Observatory. We um, we talk about him all the time in our communications. There's a bust of him on campus. We're a huge fan. Um, so today we wanted to just get the perspective of that story from his son, Al. So Al, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. Right. Okay. Well, I was born in Flagstaff, Arizona, when my dad was at Lowell Observatory. Um after uh, my high school career, I went into a career of banking. I was a banker for 37 years, uh, graduated from banking school, University of Colorado, um, retired um, several years ago, about 2002 from that, uh, then started a construction company and ran that for a while, and then sold that to my ex-son-in-law. And uh, now I work for my wife, who has a private practice in educational diagnostics, specializing in dyslexia. And uh, I build hot rods and street rods and work in my shop. And uh, other than that, uh, just putter. You build hot rods? Yes. So basically, you're the coolest person ever. Oh, my God. That's so amazing. What I'm <laughs> Can you tell me, uh, like, what kind of hot rods? What's your favorite hot rod? The one I'm working on right now, it should be on the street in a little while. It's a 1933 Ford with a Chevrolet engine in it, all chrome undercarriage. Uh, uh, it's got uh, a camera and a screen in the dash that I put in and really like a show car. I've got several others, 1934 two-door sedan. Uh, 1969 Chevelle SS396 convertible, 1957 Chevy uh, two-door station wagon, 1970 Corvette Roadster, uh, 1965 Mustang, um, a couple of drag cars, a 1965 Plymouth drag car. It's not streetable and a dragster, which you see on the TVs, probably the big long cars with the big engine in back. I've got one of those. I'm going to, I quit racing two years ago, so I'm going to sell the race cars. My daily driver is a 1976 Nova. All right. Yes. I like those. Those are nice. They're really good cars. They're the poor man's Chevelle. Like, you, have, you have a V8 in it or a six? A V8. All right. Yeah. It's amazing. I love that car. Uh, have you um, tinkered with, um, I think they call it Big Red, the car up at the observatory on display? haven't tinkered with it. I've been around it a bunch and talked to the guys that did a lot of the restoration and then that also do the upkeep on it. And it's a very interesting project. I love the car. I love that car. <laughs> All right. What can you tell us about um, your interest or even as a hobbyist, your interest in astronomy? And if you ever considered going into astronomy, I really never had any direct interest in astronomy, probably because I was too close to it. And astronomy, to a large part, uh, took my dad away from me and the things that a lot of times you would think fathers and sons do. Although my father was a great father, 
he was always very busy with his uh, professional uh, outlook on astronomy and astrophysics and geology. And um, so I never wanted to go into that, particularly when I saw how many hours he had to spend, particularly late at night with uh, that endeavor. So I went a different direction. Yeah. What was that like um, as a, a child knowing just all of these accomplishments that your father made and this discovery of Pluto? Um, like, what was that like from your perspective? Well, when I was young, of course, dad was just dad. There wasn't any uh, really knowledge or uh, understanding of what his accomplishments were as such. Then later, as I got older, particularly in junior high and then later, uh, a lot of pride. Um, of course, a lot of people thought that uh, my sister and I ought to be as smart as my dad, and uh, I had a little problem living up to that. <laughs> what a great icebreaker, though. Like People ask you to say something interesting about yourself, and just like, oh, my dad discovered Pluto. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of my it's kind of my identity. You know, I, my philosophy is that people all struggle to find their own identity. Well, I had one built in for me, so I guess I was kind of lucky. Uh, well, let's let's jump into your dad a little bit. He famously discovered Pluto when he was only 24 years old. And I think back when I was 24, and it's hard to imagine doing anything like that. But he had grown up on the farm in uh, it was born in, in Streeter, Illinois, and the family moved on a farm to uh, Kansas. How did he first become interested in astronomy? Well, he actually became interested in it through conversation with his uncle when he was very young, when he was really in grade school. He also had the opportunity to look through a telescope that his uncle had and that his dad had kind of jointly, and that piqued his interest, particularly when he found that he could see things with bigger telescopes and that learned. Uh, from reading, that he could see detail on some of the planets with the larger telescopes. Although he didn't have any available, he had a huge interest in finding something that he could use to actually see spherical uh, presentations of uh, Mars and Jupiter in particular. And that was one of the things that stimulated him to build his own telescopes. And he had, he had interest in other sciences. Um, in other subjects, right, as he is growing up? Yes, he had a lot of interest in chemistry, and his, and his younger brother was uh, very interested in chemistry and was later a chemistry professor, uh, and a real high interest in geology. And that kind of tied in with his interest, particularly in the planets and, and other solar systems, because he always had a big question as to what they were made of, which ties right into the geologies. You know, I've wondered, you know, after visiting the the farm in Kansas um, several months ago and seeing a lot of Cretaceous rock with fossils, I've, I've wondered if that ever struck him because it was all over on his farm, those rocks. And, you know, kids at a certain age get interested. Yeah, the dark skies. Um, he had rocks around. Um, was he just naturally inquisitive about the world around him? Yeah, he was pretty much inquisitive about everything. Uh, he wanted to learn as much as he could about everything that influenced his life and then everything that he saw and experienced. And and you mentioned his his uncle and dad. Who else inspired him through the years? You know, teachers or reading about others? He had uh, some high school teachers that uh, helped pique his interest, that saw his interest in in. Uh, the solar system and uh, in other solar systems. 
that may have been out there at that time he didn't know. He also had a big interest in sports, and uh, his coach, he was on the track team in high school, and his coach influenced him a lot in that regard and also helped to influence him in, in uh, following uh, his interests in planetary astronomy. And you mentioned planetary astronomy. Uh, what was his favorite planet? I think it was Mars. <laughs> yeah. A lot, a lot of people say, why wasn't it Pluto? Well, the first interest was Mars. That's what he did the drawings of, Jupiter and Mars, that he sent to Lowell Observatory for a critique that led to his job and then led to the discovery of Pluto. So that was his favorite, and also because it was one of the easiest to see detail on with the telescopes that he had available after he built his bases. And, you know, your sister remembers this was a little bit before your consciousness probably, but she remembers being here at Lowe Observatory and going up to the historic 24-inch refractor, which we still use today, and looking through that with your dad and looking at Mars and some other stuff. I was just wondering, if, if, do you have any memory of that? The first memory I really have of that, probably when I was around seven or eight years old, when Dad went back to Lowell Observatory to do some uh, further investigations and help with the team there. We lived in Flagstaff. We rented a house in Flagstaff for the summer, and uh, I interacted with the director at that time, son, who liked trains and had them all over the place set up in the uh, attic of the administration building and then also built uh, stick model airplanes and so forth and we had a good time that and that was probably my first really recognition of the whole whole observatory connection with my father mm-hmm. okay. what, what was the observatory like back then do you remember well, it, i mean i'm sure you've been recently but yes <laughs> it uh it was a very fascinating place uh, the administration building of course was extremely fascinating the small house that was uh just to the right side of the main entry to the building was where my mom and dad lived, um, and then also where I spent a little bit of time when I was younger. And I got to see all these, plus the houses from some of the administrators and some of the staff. And then also one of the things that uh, really piqued my interest was the shop that uh, – was it Henry Gickless that uh, did worked in the shop? Um, Stanley Sykes, Henry, oh, Henry yeah. worked some, but Stanley was the main instrument guy. Right. And that, I always liked shop work, working with wood and metals and that type of thing and building things and fabrication. Well, the next time you visit, you'll have to go up there with the guys and see what you can make. Yeah. <laughs> build us a cool car. Oh, we, yeah, build yeah, us a car. <laughs> I'll whittle on something while I'm there. <laughs> Do you remember, um, I'm thinking specifically like of the rotunda. The, the building that is shaped to look like Saturn. Did you get any to explore any of those areas when you were younger? Yeah, I, I uh, kind of peeked around through everything and climbed up some <laughs> of the ladders that went different places and really did a lot of investigation. And of course, the rotunda itself was an amazing place uh, with all the artifacts that were uh, around. Uh, so I have a lot of good memories about that. That's awesome. Did you ever get in trouble for poking around places or was it pretty much just free range? I don't recall that I did. And if I didn't, I wouldn't tell you. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. No, I really didn't. (laughs) And so you said that his favorite planet uh, was probably Mars just because of like visibility and that kind of thing. Um, I'm curious how he felt about like Pluto. Did he talk about it a lot or was it kind of like um, didn't really come up because it was old news? 
Yeah, he didn't talk about it a lot uh, after my recognition of his accomplishments and so forth when I started in junior high and so forth and when later in life. Um, that wasn't his main focus. His main focus was whatever project he was working on at the time. And uh, he knew that Pluto was one of the things that opened the doors to, to enable him to follow his dreams and his career. Uh, so he always had a recognition of it and talked about it lightly, but generally in answering questions from the curious people that he met. Well, let's let's uh, go back to your dad a little bit. He was on the farm, not very old, age 23. He went from the farm in Kansas to Flagstaff, Arizona. What were the, what were the conditions of that? Why did he move out here? Well, in 1929, he uh, had done some work on some mirrors and so forth and was building telescopes. And through that, uh, he... He had gotten a job, a job offer uh, from a telescope maker in Wichita, Kansas. And Dad was thinking that he certainly would like to get off the farm because that type of work on a wheat farm was just backbreaking. And uh, it required a lot of time and energy, and he would rather spend his energy on scientific research and his interests in the, the planetary system. So... He wrote a letter to, well, like I had mentioned before, that uh, asked for a critique of the drawings that he had made of Jupiter and, and Mars. And in January of 1929, he received a letter back from the observatory uh, ask, uh, asking if him, he would be interested in coming to Lowell to do some observing work as a junior observer and then also his other duties such as janitorial work, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he elected to do that. He wanted to get off the farm uh, and he wanted to pursue his, his uh, dreams and interests. So that's what started that and that's what happened. His youngest uh, sister was born on the day that he left on the train uh, to Flagstaff, Arizona. Oh, wow. He did janitorial work? I mean, just kind of like anything just to keep the observatory running. Yeah, and that's what the letter said. The letter to him that asked him if he'd be interested in coming to Lowell included uh, the uh, mention of janitorial work and other types of things like that. And what was his title? Well, he is a junior observer, I think, Kevin. Wasn't that the only title Something he had? Something like that. Yeah, it was a very generic title. Right. And it, and it was, you know, he was hired to come out here to the observatory but yeah, some of his first duties were shoveling snow off the domes and uh, getting coal in the furnace in the main building. And then, oh yeah, there's astronomy too. <laughs> and so it, the initial duties, there were a lot. And you know, that, that letter he got is interesting because it's not really, it's kind of a passive aggressive thing almost of <laughs> inviting him to come work there. And I, the first time I read it, I got halfway through it and I thought, I think this is his letter of employment, but I had to read it back a second time. But it what, how pretty... was it worded? What do oh, you mean? Just, it just talks about, you know, we have this project and it seems like maybe you could be well suited for this kind of work. Um, and, it, and it goes on like that. It doesn't say, we'd love to have you here. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's kind of indirect. And so it's interesting to read it. And, and he bought a one-way ticket out here but there was no guarantee it was going to be a long-term project. It was, you know, kind of a, 
just a experiment almost. And I, I, you know, so much with the discoverer Pluto is, is if you replayed history, it wouldn't come out the same. It's just the chances are so unlikely, you know, this 23 year old who learned astronomy on his own. And he just happened to send these drawings at the time that the observatory is looking for somebody to help with the project. If he had written that letter a few months earlier or later, it wouldn't have been relevant and they would have, he probably would have gotten a courteous reply back and that would have been it. But the timing was, was perfect for him to have written that note and it, and it turned into a job for him. And that was yeah. in 20, uh, 1929. Correct. Uh, he, he attributed to the word that he used called pluck, P L U C K, which was planned luck. Um, <laughs> and so that's kind of really where it fell. One of the other things that, uh, I forgot to note was one of his first duties at Lowell was to paint the 13-inch telescope, which was newly constructed. And that was, of course, the one that he used to do the discovery, the the investigative work in the discovery. You know, I think pluck is what got me my job at Lowell, too. At 23, I was working in the visitor center and uh, marketing just so happened to be looking for a new writer. So that worked out well. But on the topic of his search for Planet X, um, you know, I've, I've heard a couple stories like the time that he got trapped by a mountain lion, I think, overnight. <laughs> he had to stay in the dome overnight, right? Well, um, let, me, let me clarify what story. I know about that. That's what <laughs> that <laughs> yeah, <it does>. <laughs> attacked <laughs> by him. He fought a mountain lion to death with, with his bare hands. hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of the other uh, stories that kind of uh, grew uh, like Topsy was that he actually went and petted the mountain lion, which is not true because it probably, he probably would have been dinner. He wasn't absolutely positive that it was a mountain lion, but he said it made sense that the sound it made and the location of it made. And he encountered that when he was walking from the 13-inch dome back to the app building. Which must have been terrifying because mountain lions, they sound like a screaming person sometimes. Yeah, right. I've heard. Yeah. Um, okay. So embellished lore aside um what was his his kind of day-to-day while he was searching for planet x like uh resting during the day doing research with the blink microscope and doing the other chores as uh as uh as noted (laughs) and um then at night of course spending long hours in a very cold dome doing photographic work and setting up the telescope to do the photographic work and Kevin, Kevin may have some more stuff to that. He lived in the apartment in the ro- the building of the rotunda, correct? Yes. Yeah. In the what was that the, the upper story? Yeah, on the, the, on the second floor, the west wing. Um, there were there was sleeping space for kind of the single observers, those without family, and there are several different rooms. In fact, I'm in one of them right now. That was might this might very well have been the room he was in. But through the years, most of those spaces were converted into offices. But there's one spot that we call the Clyde Tombaugh apartment in honor of him. Um, that remains as an apartment for visitors. And he was married at this in 1929 when he moved? No, he wasn't. He wasn't? Uh, okay. No. He, after the discovery of Pluto, one of the things that he got that he cherished was a full scholarship to, to Kansas University. And so he moved uh, to the Kansas University campus and was uh, living in a dormitory. And he said that that was rather annoying because a lot of the people were very loud and it was difficult for him to study. 
So he was looking for some other place to live. Well, as it turned out, uh, my mom's mother had a house that she had a room that she was going to rent. Um, my mom's brother, James Edson, was also in a class with my dad at KU. And he said, you know, my mom's got a room for rent. Would you be interested? So he went and took a look at it. And uh, that was perfect for what he wanted to do, which led to his uh, discovery of his best discovery. And that was my mom, Patricia. My heart. <laughs> I love it. If he had gotten married in Flagstaff, Kevin would have been there to officiate. Yes, That's he would right. have found a way. How old are you, Kevin? <laughs> Nobody, sure. knows. <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> That's so amazing. So, um, and did he ever return back to Lowell for oh, yeah. research? He just, he just went to the university uh, during the off season for observing and then came back uh, to do his duties at Lowell Observatory. And, and did Patricia, in, was it? Uh, is yes. That right? Did Patricia right. return with him? Uh, well, in 1939, was it, Kevin? Sometime in the late 30s, yeah. 1935, 30s. I guess it was. Uh, he asked mom if he'd be interested, if she would be interested in coming to Lowell Observatory with him. And my mom told him that uh, that she considered that a proposal for marriage because no proper young lady would ever accompany a man without being married. I love and her. <laughs> so, so, so that was the marriage proposal. And then they were married and then moved to Flagstaff. Put a That's, ring on it, Clyde. I'm going <laughs> to use that line. I'm going to see if that works. Yeah, I'm taking notes. I'm taking notes. <laughs> That's so cool. And was she um, impressed you know, um, or if you know this story, you know, like, oh, your new roommate. Also, he discovered a planet. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, like I said, her brother was one of my dad's classmates. And, and actually, uh, he has his own list of fame from Lowell Observatory, White Sands Proving Ground, uh, CIA, and all kinds of different government entities, too. What? Um, and so she learned, of course, of my father's accolades to that point. From her brother to start with. Was he a mini celebrity? Well, it depends on what you call a mini celebrity. Um, oh. He worked with Werner, Werner von Braun, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and the people that uh, put together White Sands Proving Ground. And that's also kind of what led to my father going to White Sands after, mm. uh, he, after the job at Lowell was eliminated. Because you could imagine, like, today if a 24-year-old scientist discovered a new planet in our solar system. Um, I mean, the media coverage, it would be insane. I mean, that's like the American dream, you know, like all of those things, it would be like, I feel like it'd definitely be a household name pretty immediately. Um, was that the case when uh, Clyde, uh, after Clyde discovered Pluto? Well, you know, he got, he got, uh, accolades from the press in the United States. And his biggest accolade through the discovery was the uh, Wilt Medal from England. The uh, Wilt Medal? The, Can you repeat that? Yeah. It was the, uh, what What Wilt Medal was it, Kevin? Wilt Medal? Jackson, Jackson, Jackson Wilt, G-W-I-L-T. Mm. And, and um, of course, that kind of spread his fame internationally. Although the, the the initial news releases of the discovery uh, gave him quite a 
a bit of notoriety in and of itself. Um, I'd have to be a, a desirable suitor in 1930 or whatever, 35. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, no, it, it definitely was um, international news because Venetia Burney had heard about the discovery and she sent in her, right. her name suggestion. The naming right. contest, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, her dad was an amateur. Her father was an amateur astronomer in England, oh. and uh, that's how they kind of tied together. And she came up with the yeah. idea that uh, Pluto, who was the uh, god of the underworld, uh, kind of fit with what the uh, last planet they thought maybe out there was. Uh, and then also the PL for Pluto kind of matched with Percival Lowell, so that helped. Did Clyde like the name of uh, Pluto? Yes, he did. Yeah, that's one of my favorite stories. Um, if not my favorite story about Pluto, was the naming of it. And we still have Venetia. we still have a couple hundred telegrams and letters from around the world, people suggesting names. There wasn't an official um, contest or anything, but but people got the impression there was, and so they started sending suggestions here, and and it's a it's a great study. You could look at those suggestions and tell what era you're living in. You know, there's some suggestions of naming it after Charles Lindbergh, who had just flown <laughs> over the Atlantic a few years before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some common suggestions were peace or Pax, because the 1930s were supposed to be the decade of peace. And it started out well, at least. <laughs> it didn't end so well. Yeah. But it's fascinating to look at the naming and, and what they ended up using. And, you know, something else with the discovery that I that I think really tells a story about your dad, you know, we know that this work that he did was, was mind-numbingly boring and took somebody <laughs> with, with um, patience and attention to detail um, to do this, which most people wouldn't have. But there's another part of the story that I think is neat. After, after he made the discovery at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, on February 18th, his his boss, Dr. Slifer, said, okay, now don't tell anybody because we want to study this some and not make any announcement before we feel pretty sure what it is. And he didn't tell anybody like he was like he was told. And that included family. There we have the letters that that he exchanged with his family. And the most he said just a couple of days before the announcement on March 13th was yeah, it's been pretty busy here at work, and that's about it. And and maybe you could take this over, Al, of how his parents found out, and then what what that says about your dad of he was told to do something, and he did it like he was told. Yeah, well, I think they found out from a news release, didn't they? Right, yeah. <laughs> Which was, Yikes. The, the yeah, newspaper that's... called them up, the, the toil and tiller, I think it is, <laughs> that's Correct. still around. And the reporter called and said, Mr. Tomba, what do you think about what your son did? Oh, you never <laughs> want the son. <laughs> he said, what? What? Well, oh, no, what I did he do? I don't have a son. What are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and so, and, but he was told not to tell anybody, and he didn't, he didn't tell his parents or anybody. And I think that's just neat that he, not even a little hint or pillow talk or Anything like that, he, you know, he, it just that seems to tell me a lot about his character, um, and not just attention to detail, but 
you know, the kind of person he was. His pillow talk would have been with a real pillow. (laughs) (laughs) Before your mom came along. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, What um, does that sound about right from, you know, what you personally knew about Clyde is that he would like man of his honor kind of thing. Oh, my dad was my, both my parents were probably, well, they were the most honorable people that I've ever known. We never had to guess whether or not what they said was truthful. We always could bank on their their comments being the absolute truth and not colored to much extent or biased to much extent. Um, And that was a great thing to grow up with. That's awesome. Did they tell you the truth about Santa? Uh, no, they lied. <laughs> that might be the only lie on record. Well, I, I don't know. That's that's a good that's a good lie. It depends I, on what you call a lie, right? Yeah, <laughs> little kids don't listen to this, right? I hope not. <laughs> <For Sam. Yeah. laughs> so, uh, so all I all I really know about your father was, um, I mean, all of the stories and pictures and this incredible, like, kid. Basically, I mean, I, I know it's fully fledged adult, but you think of just uh, a scientist at the age of 24, making a discovery of this magnitude is incredible. And as Kevin said, it would take a lot of attention to detail and like sticking through long hours of like blinking through these slides and looking for any changes. And, um, was that, uh, something that was pretty consistent in his personality as well? Like you see with a lot of scientists or was that his work he was very detail-oriented in everything that he did. Um, as you probably know, he built a lot of the, uh, the telescopes and other instruments by hand, and he would use very rudimentary tools to do that, uh, it, even to the point where if a family member such as myself would give him a power tool but later in life, he wouldn't use that power tool, and we found them later just still in the box because he did everything with the old hand tools that he had learned how to use in the shop on the farm. Uh, but he was so detail-oriented that everything that he did, although it was very basic, was what I would call perfect. Mm-hmm. Do you think you absorbed like your love of building cars and like doing things with your hands from him? I probably inherited the the love of, of mechanics to some extent and then uh, the want to have things done correctly and as perfectly as possible from him. Although he didn't really have, didn't share my interests and didn't understand my interest in cars. In fact, uh, when I took the 49 Ford that he had given to me, which was the old family car, an old four-door 49 Ford six-cylinder and I put a big Chevrolet V8 in it and a four-speed transmission and headers coming out the side and, and uh, aluminum wheels on it. His only question was, why would you want to do that? <laughs> why can't you just build a telescope? Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> he never pressured me to go into astronomy. He never pressured okay. either one of my sister mm-hmm. or myself to go into his uh, line of, uh, of career. Afterward, is that when um, everyone moved to New Mexico? Well, my, again, my uncle, uh, James Edson, who was uh, fundamental in the building of White Sands Proving Ground near, White, near Las Cruces, um, my dad had accepted a professorship at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. 
um, and we were getting ready to move to Albuquerque uh, right after they came back from California. And my uncle James was talking to my dad, saying that uh, they needed more precise information, better information about rocket trajectories and flights uh, with the captured V2s that we captured from Pinamundi after the war, Pinamundi, Germany. Um, and he said my dad would be the perfect one to do it. So I talked to my dad, and my dad initially said, I can't do that. I've already accepted the position at the University of New Mexico. Well, my uncle was very persuasive and finally got my dad to accept coming to White Sands Missile Range to set up the optical tracking system for the missiles. So that's when we moved to Las Cruces. He was at White Sands for a while, but then he took a, a position. Um, and maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah, what happened was, uh, as things happen, there became a lot of government red tape at White Sands. Uh, and by 1955, when my father had started a nearer satellite search for the Department of the Army, um, my dad said, uh, I'm going to resign my position at White Sands, and I'd like to move the search for the nearer satellites to New Mexico, which was New Mexico at A&M, which is now New Mexico State University, to the physical science, science laboratory there. And after a little bit of argument, they agreed that uh, he could move that search to uh, NMSU, New Mexico State. And so in 1955, he did that and moved to uh, work at through PSL Physical Science Laboratory at New Mexico State University. And what was he doing there? Uh, they were doing a nearer satellite search to see if there was going to be anything up there that would interfere with rocket flight for the upcoming investigations of outer space that might interfere with any of the plans from the Department of the Ar Army's uh, vehicle launches, if you want to call it that. Very neat. Um, and so his, his teaching career, um, do you, from what I know of him and the research and writing I've done about him, he was really passionate about teaching. Um, what do you think inspired that? I think uh, what inspired him was his intense interest in astronomy, astrophysics, and geology. I think he felt a need and probably a responsibility to pass on some of that learning. Mm -hmm. And he enjoyed working with people at a teaching level. And so that's when he got into the teaching side at New Mexico State University and started the Department of Astronomy and uh, the doctoral program at New Mexico State. And I imagine the people that he was teaching were around the age that he was when he discovered Pluto. So I wonder if he kind of like saw the potential there. Oh, sure. I, I think he recognized the interests that he had at that level and the fact that he had a lot of holes in, the, in his knowledge, particularly about the field that he was very interested in. And so he felt an obligation to perhaps fill that need for students at the university. Now let's, let's jump ahead in time to 2015. Your father had passed away by this point, um, but this is when the New Horizons mission flew by Pluto. And, and I think most people listening have seen well, I think the whole world has seen the remarkable images that turned your dad's little dot into a world. 
Um, and he certainly would have been pleased to have been able to see that. Um, and in a way he was. And I think this is one of the more personal parts of the New Horizons mission and how it touched so many people, but your family in particular, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the, the special package that the New Horizons was carrying. Yes. Um, luckily, Alan Stern, who was the principal investigator for the New Horizons mission, uh, had contacted my sister at that time uh, asking if there were any perhaps ashes left from my dad because he was cremated that they might consider putting on the uh, on the New Horizons spacecraft. Uh, luckily, there was some left. So uh, they encapsulated that and put them in a special container uh, on the New Horizons. And so my dad's uh, memory and part of him is still uh, meandering out into space. Well, it's not. It's a little bit better trajectory than meandering. Let's say it's semi-guided <laughs> into space. Would your um, father have been sentimental about that? Had he, known? Uh, he would have been sentimental about it. Yes, uh, the, the the before renaming of planet uh, before. First of all, I don't think the New Horizons mission probably would have existed or would have happened if the demotion of Pluto had happened prior to the launch, and that that's too bad. Because uh, it, I don't think, as the rest of the family doesn't think, as the Observatory doesn't think, as the state of New Mexico doesn't think, as the state of Illinois doesn't think, <laughs> Pluto is not a minor planet. It is a planet, a full-fledged planet in our solar system. Uh, that would have disturbed him, although he knew that there was controversy before his death over the status of Pluto. Uh you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who was one of the people that uh, was instrumental in the recognition of the demotion because he took it out of the uh, out of the solar system display at Hayden Planetarium. He came to my house and met with the family. And uh, I like Neil. I like what he's done for astrophysics as a whole. Uh, but we continue to agree to disagree. Well, let's let's go to that day, July of two of two thousand fifteen, um, in Maryland, at Mission Control for New Horizons, and at the um, center where there was media. There were several hundred people, including you and your family, and there were several. This is when New Horizons was flying by Pluto, and there was a moment when we knew exactly when the spacecraft was going to fly by, and as it did that. American flags are waving all over the room, and people are cheering, thinking New Horizons made it. What were you thinking, knowing that it wasn't just the spacecraft, but your dad arrived at Pluto? Uh, I basically had my fingers crossed, particularly after we found that there was some problems with the computers on the spacecraft um, and that they were working uh, really thrashing on the problem, trying to correct it before it was too late, and they were successful in doing that. So I had my fingers crossed. Also, a huge amount of pride that our family could be involved uh, and have some part in this total mission and the discovery. And then, of course, after we got the images back uh, of Pluto, we were absolutely astonished, as was the rest of the scientific world, 
about what Pluto was actually like. And uh, there's there's still a lot of an amazement through our family about that. And and one of the most iconic images, of course, is the heart-shaped feature. And during this New Horizons flyby event, um, as at one of the press conferences with the crowd sitting in the audience, they announced the name for that region, um, which is the Tombaugh Regio. And I remember looking and seeing the whole world pointing at you and your sister sitting in the audience. And I, I don't know, did you know that that was going to happen or was that a no, surprise? No, I was a total surprise. We had no <laughs> idea that was going to happen. And of course, we were delighted. Right now, as I look to my left, I, there's a globe on an end table that uh, of Pluto, including Tombaugh Regio, uh, which was just handed to me. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I love the image of that, naming it, um, even that heart after Clyde as he's, his, um, you know, ashes are passing by Pluto and then there's this heart gleaming back. That's really cute. <laughs> yeah, and of course, Alan Stern had an awful lot to do with that. And we thank him immensely. Now, now, we've talked about a lot of things. And your father is, you know, he's a hero to so many um, for not just the discovery of Pluto, but how he carried himself for inspiring future scientists and people. But there's a dark side that we have to talk about. And so um, <laughs> I, I think you're going to be okay talking about this, but he was known for some of the worst puns ever. Or the best. <laughs> or the best. That's right. When you were growing up, was that part of a dialogue that, you know, he would tell a pun like, a, like any dad does tell a pun and you guys would just groan or... Uh, mostly there were just eye rolls. Yeah. You know, just, uh, where in the world did you come up with that? But we also recognized what we like to call some of the genius involved in the relation of words. Make puns. They call punning the driest form of humor, which perhaps we agree with, but it also, in my opinion, takes a pretty good intellect. Well, you know, one of my favorite, he has, he had all those crow jokes. Yeah. I think his the most, crow jokes. You know, crow jokes think, right there. Yes. Crow jokes. <laughs> I, think, I think one of my favorite is, and you were talking about the creativity is, um, is what kind of flowers do they put on a crow's coffin? And the answer is crocus. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is, uh, what do crows use to tell time? And the answer was a crow. The meter. <laughs> That's right. I like That's that right. one. <laughs> so funny because there are, I, I don't, I, I still don't know if they're ravens or crows, but they're everywhere in Flagstaff. So he must mm -hmm. have just seen them and just had crows on the brain and come yeah. up with all these fantastic puns. <laughs> yeah. He, well, he related to a lot of crows because that was one of the problems they always had in the fields of, in Kansas. So oh, yeah. <laughs> you can relate okay. to crows. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Mm -hmm. Here's one of the ones I always liked. It says, "It says, uh, what makes crows black in color? They're chromosomes." Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so good. Well, thank you, Al, so much for joining us and for taking the time to talk about your father and. 
your whole family and their uh, incredible accomplishments. If anyone has any questions about uh, Clyde Tomball that you'd like Al to answer or our historian, Kevin, or I could make up some answers for you as well. They just probably won't be correct. You can find us on Twitter at StarStuffPod or you can um, find us on, we have a Discord that's available on our website at lol.edu or you can email us directly at info at lol.edu. So thank you so much, Al, for your time today. Uh, thank You're you. You're welcome. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Lowell Observatory members and subscribers like you.